Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mark Devine here coming at you from SealFit headquarters in sunny Encinitas, California. Welcome to this week's podcast. And I am stoked to share a conversation I had with Captain Bob Schultz, former Navy SEAL, former uh, command, retired Navy SEAL, I should say, former commander of Naval Special Warfare Group 2 and SEAL Team 2 and a host of other places. Bob is a terrific guy. I first met him at uh, University of San Diego where he was running a master's program and um Man, I wish I had known him my my full SEAL career. What SEAL career? What a great guy! We're going to have a lively conversation about ethos, and what the SEAL ethos means, and its shortcomings, and uh, it's good stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. And before we get started, let me remind you that if you'd like to stay up to date on any special offers only available to the SEAL Fit Tribe, as well as get the latest weekly podcast and um, SEAL Fit TV episodes and my weekly workout challenge as well as a mental wad, all emailed to you, then drop your email into our opt-in list at sealfit.com, on the homepage of sealfit.com. All right, here we go. Uh, conversation with Captain Bob Schultz. Hoo-ya. Hey, folks. This is Commander Mark Devine coming to you from Unbeatable Mind. Welcome to this month's subject matter expert call. I'm really stoked to have uh, Captain Bob Schultz with us. Uh, this uh, month, Bob is, and I have known each other for several years since um, our, my, my days at University of San Diego. Bob is a, a retired Navy SEAL, uh, spent um, several years longer than I did in the community, the bulk of his, his uh, first career, I should say. And anyways, Bob has done a, uh, did an amazing job at our Unbeal Mind retreat, and so we want, I wanted to invite him back on here. But before I um, you know, get into the content, let me give you a little bit of his bio so you understand uh, just who we're dealing with here. And I'll probably end up reading what I have here because um, he's done some pretty interesting things and it'd be, be worth reading. So Bob uh, graduated from Stanford University back in 74. He studied philosophy there, um, which is relevant to you know, what came later in his career and what he's doing now. He started, you know, he's an officer, he's commissioned in the Navy as an ensign, went to BUDS um, in Coronado, uh, and then into in the summer of 75, then he went to, um, uh, had various tours all over the place, just like, you know, all officers do. He um, was uh, commander of a SEAL team, and I'll ask Bob to tell us which one, because I don't have that in my bio here. Uh, special boat squadron, uh, all the way up to uh, Commodore of NAVSEC War Group 2 back in Little Creek as an 06. Uh, he was also, in his last tour, director of leader and character development at the Naval Academy, retired in 2005. 
Uh, since then, and this is where um, I, I met him. I actually didn't meet uh, Bob on active duty, but I met him um, when he retired at the University of San Diego, where he took over from my friend Jerry Singleton to head up the Master's of Science in Global Leadership at the School of Business Administration at the U University of San Diego. And he was there uh, until November of 2011. And now Bob is kind of launching into his third career as a speaker uh, on leadership primarily and character development and those types of things. He's a consultant, and his company is called Fifth Factor Leadership. Uh, Bob's married, been married for 34 years. He's got three kids, uh, one of whom was a Zen monk and the other who is a Navy SEAL. So we have a lot to talk about with Bob. He's, uh, you know, he is definitely has an unbeatable mind and is, um, you know, near and dear to my heart. I love, I love this guy. So, Bob, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Really an honor to have you here. Well, thank you, Mark. A, a, a quick uh, amendment to your to your bio. I, I never commanded a SEAL team. I commanded an overseas unit. And okay. for those people who haven't been in the SEALs, one might not understand. I, I tell people I was, it was a SEAL team, but actually I commanded the unit in Panama where where the SEALs, SEAL team sent us people and we deployed them and managed them all over Latin America and managing all the SEAL stuff in Latin America at the time. And I uh, did not com command a special boat squadron, though underneath the Spec War Unit 8 in Panama, we had SBU 26, and so I, I'm kind of an honorary member of the, of the special boat community, which I'm proud of. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, well, thanks for that clarification. I wasn't sure about that. So, you know, Bob, you're, you're, you kind of had a pretty rich career in Spec War, and you went into it with a background in philosophy. Tell, tell me, again, you know, and one of the things that, that really um, impressed me about, you know, when we first met was how you really had a a strong um, philosophical orientation to warriorship and, and warrior development. And obviously that must have been influenced by your um, undergrad degree in philosophy at Stanford and then, of course, your work at the Naval Academy. But, you know, not all SEALs and military people share that. You know, I've always long said that you have the guys who just like to play whack-a-mole and then you have the guys who really are there to be warriors. You know, how did you really develop your interest in character development and, you know, some of the finer aspects of, of leadership? Well, I think uh, one the thing that drew me to philosophy was my interest in trying to understand what was important and trying to understand myself and the context that I lived in. And I went into the SEALs because I had to pay back my ROTC scholarship. And, right. uh, and this looked like a fun way to do it. And I'd been, an, I'd been an athlete in high school and and in college and I'd wrestled at Stanford and in high school. And, and this was like a, uh, a way to, to be athletic, have a good time and do pay back my four-year commitment. And, and of course it turned into 30 years. I had a, I, I found a, a home. I enjoyed it. I did not find a lot of my SEAL buddies were particularly interested in philosophy, but I, there are, there are people in that community who, who are they just don't they don't share it openly because it's not a a part of uh, sort of the, the culture that we have. But I think that while I was in the, the 30 years I was in, I continue to pursue this. Why are we doing this? Why am I here? Where, where do what where does what I do fit into the larger context of uh, of how to live well? And am I doing it here now? And I I found that I was able to live well in from a larger sense, not just financially, but I had a good life in my 30 years. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and I found myself at this character leader development position at the end of my career in 
that really, really resonated with me. And I found that what I liked about it was what I really liked about being a leader in the Navy, and that was developing people, helping them to find their path, helping them to understand where they fit in and understand their own values. And that's uh, and that's what I got into at the Naval Academy in a, in a big way, kind of going full circle from where I started at Stanford. And then pursued that for the next six years at the University of San Diego, running that master's program that you were associated with. And right. I'm doing, I'm still doing that now in uh, my business uh, uh, speaking, teaching, consulting. So right. it, it all kind of ties together in a strange sort of way. No, it definitely does. I, I get it. Um, you know, let's go back to the beginning. You know, uh, philosophy, you know, education is different than the experience of, you know, learning how to live well. What were some of the things that, I mean, it's nice to go into the seals with that, that backdrop, you know, to, to read Aristotle and to really think, you know, and ponder those great thoughts. But, again, that doesn't make you a man. That just gives you some content. So what were some of the experiences in uh, maybe your early days that helped you kind of really forge your own character and uh, help you develop the words around your, you know, what you would call or I would call your personal ethos, you know, that, that guiding um you know, kind of statement or concepts around how to live well, as you understood it. Well, what, to begin with, when I first came into the uh, into the SEAL program, I wasn't. I still was struggling with the culture of change from being a footloose, fancy-free, uh, thinking uh, college student to being a a SEAL uh, or a UDT SEAL warrior, and, and I didn't do well with that cultural adjustment at first. And and frankly, uh, during my first my first tour, I was uh, I was put on probation, and my platoon commander recommended that I be thrown out of the SEAL teams, not for any particular no action. Way. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, because uh, I I didn't fit, and I was being told I didn't fit, and I knew I fit. I just didn't, hadn't learned to adjust my style to to the to the uh, culture of the SEAL community, and right. once I learned to do that, I fit in a lot better. And, and interestingly enough, I was called to testify at the board that ended up throwing out the officer that recommended that I be thrown out. Um, ah. that, there was a little bit of a, a little a bit of sweet uh, sweet revenge in that, but right. He really he he didn't fit in either he he did not fit I fit better than he did he just didn't know it uh, but I think that one one of the things that came out of that was this resilience the idea that frequently we have to be patient and things don't work right away and right. it actually took me about uh, six or seven years to find my footing uh, in the community and when I found it I found it pretty well and uh, and. Uh, and since I felt been able to offer something that that was unique to me to uh, to the community. So back to your first question, what were some of the key experiences? One that not uh, succeeding right off the bat uh, right. forced me to really think about who I was and whether I wanted to, and and dig down deep and find the resilience to adapt and adjust, and still hold on to my own personal identity. Right. Yeah. That that's um. Wow. That's a valuable one. Kind of shared some of that myself, and you know, found that some of the most valuable learning experiences, of course, were ridiculously painful. And when did well, you also, first... also, also, I think that some of the people who hit the ground running right away, 
and that looked like it was a great fit for him, particularly in the officer world. After by the time they got to be senior lieutenants, they they weren't cutting it. And uh, and there are different skill sets required at different levels of leadership. Right. And this is one of the challenges I talked to the commander of basic training command. Now, how do you not filter out the guys early who may not be great at the right out of the blocks, but who have a lot of the, of the skill sets and the personality and the, and the character and the ethos to succeed well uh, at the 04 and above level? Right. And that's very true. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, um, so here's a question. You know, when did you first literally pen a ethos statement? You know, a personal guiding statement. Well, it was. It's interesting. You know, I the I when I was preparing from preparing my remarks for the Unbeatable Mind Academy conference, I realized that I've never actually sat down and penned a single statement, which was, "This is my personal ethos." I was doing it as I was thinking. I had enjoyed those remarks so much because it, it forced me to stop and think about the right. issues uh, a lot. But in a related way, when I was, I had my letter in to get out of the seals after four and a half years, and I'm writing, and I, and I remember being with my platoon in Belgium and right. staying up one night writing down for myself what do I, and I was 26, 27, I was 27 years old at the time. And I was writing down for myself, what do I want to be able to say about myself when I'm 40? Right. And I made a list of things that I wanted to say. These are the things that I can say I have done. These are the things I can say about myself. And I, and I wrote that down because I knew I was going to come back from that deployment and get out of the Navy. Right. And, and I needed some to help myself get through that transition period. And that, that statement, and I've looked around for the piece of paper, but I've lost it. But there were several things on there that I do remember, and they helped me make a couple of fundamental key decisions that have led to my, I'd say, my my happiness and whatever success I've achieved after that by thinking through that. And so I think it's an important process. And when I posted my blog on personal ethos, I got one of the responses I got was from a friend of mine who was 74, 75 years old. Right. And he came back and said, you know, my ethos today at age 74 is different from what it was when I was 60, which is different from what it was when I was 50, which is different from what it was when I was 40. Absolutely. And, and as he says, as I've grown and had experience and matured and broadened my own perspective, my values have adjusted, shifted, and who I want to be also adjusts and shifts with that. Right. I thought that was pretty profound. Yeah, I do. I do too. That's really neat. The, um, you know, you said something really critical, and, you know, that all came about because you asked yourself a question. The question is, what you know, what do I want to, you know, say about myself at 40? You know, what what, what kind of person do I want to be or what, you know, how do I want to be um, perceived by others? And so I've often said in Unbeal Minds that the quality of our life really is dictated by the quality of the questions we ask. That then will will provide you know guiding instructions right for our brain, which then you know triggers the the thought patterns and the imagery and everything else kind of flows from there. And you shared at the Beetle Mind Retreat, I think ten or eleven kind of questions, which can be used to um, help you know guide 
your development of what eventually is a personal ethos, which is just basically a, a set of criterion for living a good life, you know, as you defined it, which I think is right on. And then you, uh, those, I think that's what you summarized in your blog post. But can you share, you know, a few of those with us now and, and just, you know, help, uh, help the Unbeal Mind community with some really good questions that they can ask themselves? Yeah, without going, going through all of them and, and right. the whole thing, I, I started off with, am I ready to deal with failure? Right. And how do I how do I deal with not getting what I want? And uh, and that that's something that's that uh, that that is important to figure out. And also it's important to figure out what do I want that's really important. And right. uh, do I do I want the right things? And that was inspired by a friend of mine, uh, a young man who who did not make it through SEAL training, and this was what he what he had wanted for almost his whole life, and he feels like his life is over. And right. I'm telling him, you know, I was t- and I told the story at, at the conference, becoming a SEAL or getting into a certain college or or uh, getting a, the right girl to, to fall in love with you or whatever, those are means to an end. And what is the end? And the end is to to be a person of character and to live well. Right. And if you don't, and if you don't get something you want, then you you can either keep trying and find another way, or you find another path to get around that one means, which may be a, a door that's closed to you, which opens up another door. And right. in my life, and I think I'll, and I know that in your life, because I know some of your life story, there are things that you did not get what you wanted, and and right. then, and and what that did is it turned you in a direction which opened up a door which was actually way better than the first one to begin with. Absolutely. And, yeah. So you know, on that what, point, what, I think that those two questions are fantastic, and you could, you know, literally just, you know, linger on those for days and weeks. But you're spot on. You know, that whole idea of you know what do I want and how you define that is really important. You know, had I uh, personally set my sights on wanting to be a SEAL 06 or a SEAL Admiral, you know, or even a SEAL for 30 years. And when I, you know, when I reached that inflection point, you know, with my wife and those conversations about, you know, staying and going, um, it would have been a a much different uh, decision than had I defined what I want as to be a good person, to be a warrior, and to make a contribution. And so, you know, with, with that different definition, which fit within the context of being a SEAL or vice versa, it gave me a lot of latitude to make a better decision, right? That, like you said, opened up the world to me. And ultimately, be, and ultimately becoming a SEAL really is, for everybody, a means to an end. And right. the end is we, we want to be respected. We want to live a life well lived. And right. there, are, there are SEALs that are not respected, that are not living good lives. Right. Uh, and, and the farther you move on past that, uh, you realize that this was, that was just a, a step on the path towards living the life you want. But it's not the only step. It's not necessarily the best step. It's the, it's the step I took, the step you took. But again, the, keeping your, your front sight focused on the big, the big issue, which is living well, living a good quality life is hard sometimes. Yes, indeed. And that second question, how do you deal with failure? I mean, I think that's, that's so important for developing resiliency and just developing or understanding, you know, creating a relationship with failure where it's not personal and it's not um, it's not perceived as a stop point or you know um, where you have to like pack your bags and go home, you know, and and, that, and uh, you know better than I do that seals 
learn to embrace that failure and they move toward it so that they can learn a better way to do things. And so that I've always loved that term failure is not an option, not because of the simple definition or the simple way to look at it, but more that failure is not an option because failure doesn't exist. It's a mental construct. Yeah, inter- interesting. You remember I, I used the, the famous Michael Jordan quote about all the shots he's missed and all the games he's lost and how many times he was he was uh, given the uh, last chance for the game-winning shot in the last seconds, how many times he missed. And he says the right. reason why he's had such a successful career is because he failed so many times. Right. That's awesome. So what else? You, those are those are two really good questions to help kind of set the foundation I, for the next, know, ethos. Yeah, the next, what, what were some of the, the other really made, good ones? The next point I made in my, my remarks was about am I ready to deal with hardship and tragedy? which is different right. from failure, not getting what I want. I mean, they're related, right. but uh, how we all lose lose people we, or something bad happens, we lose our home, uh, or we maybe we, we have an accident and we're not going to be able to do something, uh, our, one of our hobbies or sports that has been so important to us. Or uh, And this is almost a thing that comes to a point of faith, comes to uh, the stoic acceptance of things you can and can't control. Right. And so I think about, and at the end, I think the last one I brought up in the remarks was uh, embracing death. Right. And once you and, and once you embrace death, then these other things become less less important. Uh, I'm I've, I picked up a book that was recommended to me at one of the seminars I taught, and it is fabulous. Have you heard of the the book uh, High Altitude Leadership? No, no, I don't think I have. Wow, when when you when you pick that up and start reading it, Mark, you will it'll blow your mind. Great. And uh, I mean the 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 first chapter itself is fear of death, and this is a business leadership book. Get that? Is the guy a and, Buddhist? And it, no, it's actually the book is the written by a uh, a leadership consultant named Don Schminke, who who has another book out, which is a um, uh, the code of the samurai applied to business. And a uh, a world-renowned mountain climber like Mount Everest K2, that kind of guy, who okay. has been up in the in the most austere environments, watched some of his partners fall and die on the mountains he's been climbing, and and what are the the lessons learned from that in the world of business? But this idea of of embracing one's death in figurative or literal terms allows one to bring into perspective the inevitable loss of people or things that are important to us in our life. Right. No, I, I love that. I think that's really, that's super powerful. Um, you know, one of the, one of the drills that I have the unbeatable mind trainees do in the seminars um, is, and I don't know, if, I can't remember if we addressed it at, at the uh, retreat, but is to write their epitaph. Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great exercise. Yeah, exactly. To just to contemplate that moment, right? And uh, it's 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 not the same as you know what what Don is talking about in his book. I don't think you know just just you know doing a a, a fantasy trip into the future and thinking about what you know how you want to be remembered is one thing. But you know, kind of from the Eastern perspective or the samurai perspective, to truly be at peace with this idea of your mortality. So much so that you have non-attachment to your body. Even I mean, that's that's advanced, right? That takes a lot of courage. 
And I think that's probably, you know, his point is that leadership takes courage. And so why don't we start there, right, by embracing your mortality. And living, and that, that you know, causes you to live every day with your hair on fire. Yeah. You know? It's certainly easy, easier when you've done that to uh, uh, to go ahead and, ha- and and step forward and do the right thing, the thing that you really believe in, and without too great a concern for, what people are going to think or what's going to happen or uh, trying to you know, game the system, which, yeah, we all have to play the game of life. But if that becomes your whole life is playing the game of life, then you, you miss what's really important. Well said. I agree. You're very influenced by um, the you know Greek philosophy and Stoicism, aren't you? I, I, have, I find a lot of uh, find a lot of in Stoicism that, that resonates with me. I don't I don't. I can't use all of it. I, I once wrote, wrote one of my blog posts was on stoicism, the good, the bad, the ugly. Right. But I I really find uh, over and over again, I, I default to that as a, a good going in position. Um, and there are some aspects of, of if you get into the philosophy itself that, that, that in, a, in a deep way that, that I don't completely abide with or uh, completely on board with. But by and large, the... Uh, maintaining the value on one's honor and to concern oneself with what you can control and right. to let the things you can't control go. Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, uh, serenity poem, the serenity to change the things I can to, um, how does it go? Um, accept the things I cannot change, change the things I can and, and wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom to know the difference. Right. Exactly. So what, what did you find uh, lacking in stoicism? The bad and the ugly. The the bad uh, is it, it depending on how you interpret it. It can there can be a certain fatalism, you know, right. if, if, to it. And uh, and I continue to believe that that you that you can make a difference. Just find a way to make a difference. Right. That also that there can Bye-bye. be a, a concern about not um, there not being enough room for joy. Fun, yeah. fun in it. It's it's a it's a it's, it's a fairly uh, austere philosophy, but right. then again, if but Admiral Stockdale was the Stoic that I'm most familiar with in, in Epictetus. He was a right. he was a fun loving guy too, and he had fun. So you know, I think that if you take the essence of it, which is is live honorably, don't concern yourself with things that uh, that that you can't control, and and concern yourself with the things you can control, and you, which includes your attitude, your actions, and your decisions, and the rest let the rest fall in place. In most cases, that's pretty damn good advice. For sure. Have you ever compared uh, Stoicism to um, Eastern philosophy, such as Buddhism, and, and seen whether there's a universal thread that runs through the two? I, I tried to with uh, with uh, the Bushido Bushido a number of years ago, and I frequently say that Bushido is Stoicism on steroids. Um, and uh, and in Bushido, as a as a Westerner, is kind of over the top extreme in their in its warrior uh, approach right. to being a warrior. Right. Yet I think there's still a lot we can learn from it. I right. actually did do a study between existentialism. Which is a and Stoicism, and uh, found some interesting overlap because both of them have used the saying that it's not what matters is not what happens to you. What matters is how you deal with what happens to you. 
Right. And, and, and yet they both have a very different approach. Uh, Stoicism is very reason-focused and reason-based, and existentialism is very passion-based. Right. Uh, and and the, the existentialists will argue that you should be you know, fighting your destiny and defining yourself as an individual, fighting the crowd, fighting your destiny, define yourself as a, as a creative individual in the universe. And the Stoic will say, nah, you know, if, if, you're, if your fate is to go along, you're just you're a dog on the leash that's being pulled along by the, by the car and you're just and you're killing yourself. Right. So, Do you have a copy of that, um, that comparison study? I'd love to read it myself and share it with our folks. Yeah, I, I can I can find it. I did it about. It was actually in, in PowerPoint slides. I put it together as a presentation, which I gave to uh, which I gave at the Naval Academy, and I can still find it. And and I and I found that I, some of the people who were I was trying to identify stoic heroes and existential sages, and a number of them were the same. There, and I and I saw uh, J- Admiral Jim Stockdale as a stoic sage and an existential hero. He swam right. against the current. He defined. He stood up against the current in the Navy when he came back from uh, Vietnam. He didn't give right, a shit what the culture of the Navy said. He, this is what I'm going to do, uh, and screw you guys. This is the right thing to do. And and he did that for his whole life, after, particularly after he came back from uh, from Vietnam. A very right. uh, existential hero thing, as well as the Stoic sage thing. That's fascinating. And so you know, I I'm kind of curious your thoughts about the future of education and and teaching you know these you know powerful philosophies and and it's kind of sad that we don't really have a way to convey them in our you know general academic programs you know you have to kind of search for you get it a little bit of military academies and if you find the right teacher here and there like yourself but do you see um you know with your work and also the work that I'm doing here um more people you know kind of trying to learn some of these fundamental philosophies that form the basis of Western civilization rather than just the current pop culture that they're fed every day by media? Um, most uh, There are people who, who, who would really love this stuff and have never been exposed to it. And, and, and I still teach business ethics at University of San Diego. And right. every one of my classes, we, we teach the fundamentals of Aristotelian virtue ethics, and I have them read uh, uh, "Courage Under Fire" by by Admiral Stockdale, and right. so many and so many of them, but not all of them. But I'd say 25 or 30 percent of my students go, "Wow, this is great stuff! I didn't know any of this. Right. How can I learn more?" And then others aren't at all interested. Doesn't make them bad people. Uh, I've, by the way, I've known some of the some of the best people that I would that I whose character and leadership I would hold up to anybody in the world could care less about this stuff. Right. And I also know some people who are, who, who can argue and talk about Aristotle all day long. And I wouldn't trust him with $10. <laughs> so so I, my point is I, I don't want to over overvalue uh, the interest in, in this. It's something that I'm interested in and, and I told a story about uh, an officer, and I'll name him because he's uh, he, he's a really fine, still fine officer on the teams. Uh, his name is Nick Pinkston, and he when he went he was in the Naval Academy. He was a midshipman, and he was he was a philosophy geek, and, and he was going to wanted to go to SEAL training, and um, and so we kind of connected because I'm I'm into that too. And when he go when he's going through Bud's training, he he sends me back an email and tells me, Sir. The guys and buds are really into Aristotle. They just love the stuff on Aristotle that I share it with them. And I <laughs> type back to him. 
I typed back to him. I said, come on, Nick. You think I was born yesterday? I know the community. That's bullshit. Uh, and, and he comes back and says, no, 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 it's really true. The only thing is I just have to present it the right way. I, I never used the word Aristotle, and I just dropped the F-bomb about every third word, and they really liked the philosophy. <laughs> That's awesome. So basically he had the gift. Uh, Master Chief Will Guile is another guy who had the gift of taking these ideas and putting them into language that right. young warriors could appreciate and, uh, and, and were able to relate to and develop that kind of interest. So um, right. the, the, the point of education, you know this old saying that when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Right. The, um, you know, when we do Kokoro Camp, we have the, the class memorize the short form of the seal ethos, you know, like lead with honor on and off the battlefield, right? Or serve with honor on and off the battlefield and earn your trident every day. And the, the six statements that define, you know, the short version of that. And uh, it's, it's a powerful motivator for the team. And, um, but, you know, we had this discussion about how it doesn't necessarily make a great personal ethos. And, and in fact, you know, I, I agree with you largely because a personal ethos is personal. It's very personal. It's not the same as a team ethos. It's meant to drive an institution's values and norms and behavior. But, you know, how do we, you know, besides, when, once you, let's say you sit down with your journal and you start asking yourself these questions, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to then kind of develop it into an ethos, right? I mean, first of all, you have, you have just an understanding or awareness of who you are, kind of what drives you. But how do we then take the step of turning it into guidelines for behavior, right? I guess that's kind of an interesting um, thought point or question. Well, I think your I think your book uh, in your book uh, the way of the seal you talk about uh, about defining your values and uh, and I think that's really important. And but the reality is that you define your values every time you make a decision. Right. And and uh, and I was talking to, to the business leaders today, and I was uh, in my session that I was having. And I said, you know, you're you can say all you want about the your organization and your values and the and the ethos for your organization, but people are watching what you actually do, right. and the decisions you make, and you can distill out of the decisions you've made in your life what your real values are. Right. And, and if you if and if you do that and you sit down and think about the, the the big and little decisions, you see what your your values are. And if you don't like them, then uh, then you don't like the direction you're going. Then then you've got to start changing your decisions. And and uh, and and if you create a if you create an ethos with a different value, you're going to come up on a a crossroads and you're going to have to make a decision: Do I turn left or do I turn right? And that's going to define that's going to define who you are. Now, one right. of the books that we use, one of the books that we use in in the course that I teach is called Defining Moments. And and this uh, this guy who is the ethics chair at the Harvard Business School basically says you define yourself with your decisions. Right. So uh, so it, back to your question, uh, as a guide to life, I think one of the first questions is, is okay, what implicit guide to life are you already operating on? Right. And understanding that is the first step, because if you come up with something that's really radically different from that, you're probably not going to follow it, because you've got a momentum going in a certain direction. Right. Well, it certainly would take a lot of um, a lot of work and a lot of awareness to to break those habits, those habits of thought. 
When you made your decision to get out of the Navy because of uh, of what your family values are, you you made a you made a statement to yourself in the world as to where your values were. Right. And um, and that was a key, that was a hard decision for you, and it was a key decision, but it was also clarified what was really important to you. Um, and and and, and you and you and other people come up with on these these sorts of. You know, when I decided to to leave uh, University of San Diego uh, to go do what I'm doing now, that was not an easy decision. I was leaving a good job with a, a comfortable income and a comfortable lifestyle to go into a world of uncertainty. And kind of part of what, what I was doing was, hey, I, this is what I preach. Get out of your comfort zone, and, and I can stay here and keep doing this, but I, even though I've, I'm, not, I'm losing my passion for it, or I can go jump out into the void. And, okay, it's really not the void because I have a pension. But right. uh, there's there's some risk here, and I'm willing to do it. Uh, and right. so I think that uh, I, I'm not sure that that it would be interesting, and I've never done it to set out and okay put together all those those ten points that I made and try to put that into a concise statement that makes up a a that sums up my personal ethos. Right. Um, I I have not done that. Would be it would be an interesting drill to do. Maybe I ought to come to one of your seminars. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting for sure. We'd have some lively discussions. Yeah, putting it down on paper is, um, causes you to really take a stand, right, to, to draw a line. And, and you know, not, life isn't always that black and white. You know, the point is to put the thought in. And, you know, once you put it on paper, you you might change it the next day because you, you have another deeper insight. And the other thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about my decision, you know, when when you bring other people into your life, uh, and such as a family or a wife, uh, then a family, uh, all of a sudden it's a sea change in the, in the way you see yourself and your relationship to others. And, you know, it's kind of like joining the, the SEALs in the, in the team. Now your personal values have to be inclusive of your teammates because, you know, they're like you said, they're watching you and, and it affects the trust bond and the accountability relationship. And it's not just you out there hanging out there alone. And, you know, it's that the integral nature of things. We live in the I, we, and the it. And, um, and, and so that's why, you know, I think these, these, um, this is a, an ever, ever evolving, you know, concept, this idea of a personal ethos. And you may have a personal ethos and a team ethos, right, and an organizational ethos, but they, they sure better line up and support each other, right? Yeah. And, and this idea, one of the values that I put into uh, the 10 points I did is, is recognizing that we're part of a community. And right. my personal ethos can't be just about me fulfilling my personal goals. Uh, anybody who's married uh, in a committed relationship uh, or has a family knows that uh, that there are other people, include, in, in, not only the family, but parents, uh, uh, siblings, the community, right. they, have, uh, they have a stake in what you do. Right. Uh, and uh, And finding the right balance between complying with what everybody else wants you, how they want you to live your life, and... But at the same time, living your own life, but then recognizing your responsibilities to your community. It, right. It, there's not a formula for that. It's it's no. a personal personal thing, and it, and it's hard. Right. Before I forget, I, I wanted to ask you because I've got my um, my Apple app, not my Apple app, but my Amazon app. I've already ordered the high altitude leadership. You know, that's that's kind of how nutty I am about books. They stream in here, and I read. I try to read them as fast as I can, but. So you mentioned defining moments. There's two. There's two of them listed. One's by a fellow named 
handle this change that's coming upon us? And, and that's really, really a great question because the whole idea of, of innovation and leadership and chaos uh, is uh, is an area that uh, that I've actually done some work in, and um, and I find that really it requires some imagination on the part of the leader, the leaders on the leader's part. Right. And if the leader is wrapped around the axle in problem solving and putting out fires in his own company. And as com- and they've com- and most a lot of businesses have conflated the leadership and the management roles into one person. Right. They're not exactly. they're not going to see the sucker punch that's coming around the corner because they're going to be so down in the weeds. Right. I agree with Some, that. Somebody has got to step back and be looking out into the future, thinking about uh, uh, who the, what the competition is doing, reading Fast Company magazine uh, and the Wall Street Journal, and going to these seminars and. And if the lead, but if the leader is down in the weeds, just sol- problem solving and putting out fires, uh, the organization is not going to be very agile and is going to be surprised and going to be way behind the power curve and is going to have to go into crisis mode and may or may not survive. Right. Yeah, That's my response. It's it's. Uh, uh, but a, a lot of times I've I've seen companies save money by combining uh, the management and the leadership roles into one person. And the leader is working 20 hours a day or working 70 hours a week just trying to keep things on track and, and make sure that, the, uh, that, that uh, they're growing and that the profits are coming in. And they're not paying attention to the, the really important they're – they're, they're paying attention to the urgent issues, but the important issues are being left on the table. And the important issues over the long run are the culture of the organization – and looking out beyond and and seeing these issues that you're pointing at the change, what's going on in the marketplace, uh, what's happening with technology, what are my competitors doing, and thinking about what that means. Because if nobody's doing that, the rest of the organization is going to suffer when all of a sudden they get their butt handed to them and, uh, and they start losing market share and percentage points every month. Right. You know, we were looking at some of the the companies that have gone from zero to you know over a billion dollars in revenue in you know two to three short years, some of these new internet companies, and um, a lot of these you know are are run by teams of between five and ten people, and then they're leveraging the crap out of you know crowd the crowd right using crowdfunding, uh-huh. crowdsourcing, you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know so. Yeah. You know, Intel non- and all these other companies, non- five hundreds I'm talking about, have to have to get on board with these new ways of doing business and and figure out how to create an elite culture. Um, and and interestingly enough, Bob, we also talked about how the your most important asset in the future, not today being the future, <laughs> is your tribe. And and defining that tribe both as your internal tribe and your external tribe, meaning you know employees, independent contractors, people creating things for you, creating productivity, and your external tribe being those who are enjoying the benefits of that productivity and, and how those, you know, the, a lot of times the boundary line between those two is blurring, and we want to increase the, the size and the connection with the tribe. It's just really interesting terminology, and, um, you know, it's very, you know, humanistic and biological the way that um, business is evolving in the language that we're using. It's really fascinating. Yeah, you're hearing the word tribe come up a lot. I mean, Seth Godin's got a book out called Tribes. You've got right. uh, tribal tribal leadership and right. 
Uh, pretty soon it's going to become a cliched word and it's going to lose its meaning. Uh, but I think that the idea of being uh, being part of, of a group that feels elite right, uh, and, and it has what uh, a really good Special Forces A-team or a SEAL platoon or uh, a company like Zappos or Google or or some of the others that are are breaking uh, breaking new ground and breaking and creating new paradigms for how people relate to their work and uh, is work that's where people want to work and they don't want right. to come in and just kind of be put into a put into their uh, into their cubicle told to shut up and do their job and uh, and um, they want they want to feel engaged and empowered and uh, and enfranchised in the total purpose that's right. that's what a good that's what a great tribe looks like to me. No kidding. And they're going well beyond, you know, kind of how these special operations teams, you know, operate. Obviously, there's different environments and structures, but, you know, like Zappos literally just gave up um, job descriptions and, and hierarchy. I mean, they're completely flat. And so you go in there to work and, and you've got a specialty, but then, you know, you, you have little hives that, that pop up to go solve problems, you know, because you're all part of the same team. And you couldn't do that unless you had an, um, you know, kind of elite orientation, meaning you you did feel like you're part of something special. Yeah, you've got a, they've got these leader these leaderless teams uh, concepts people are experimenting with. It's interesting. Right. One of the groups that one of the Vistage groups I spoke to, he had he had the the chair had taken his Vistage group to uh, Zappos for a tour, and then he also took them over to Buds to compare uh-huh. two really different, but both of them are. Uh, elite consider themselves elite and are groundbreaking in the way they do business uh, and and have a very different ethos but there's still something that ties them together and they're proud to be there they support each other they're excited about it one's kind of geeky and 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 uh, young people kind of geeky and then there's the kind of warrior culture that they saw at seals but both of them had some things in common and they generated this discussion about what did they really have in common as different as they looked right well, I can tell one thing right, you know, right off the top just from listening to you is that both organizations have a very, very powerful meaning or purpose, transformative purpose for, for being part of it, right? You're doing something important, and, and that's you know, key. People will far, be far more motivated by a big, you know, very motivating purpose than a big paycheck. I think I think you're absolutely right, and and a, a lot of when I bring that up as, as a sense, and I talk about elite organizations having PTFC, uh, not PTSD, and right. PTFC is purpose, trust, focus, and uh, and camaraderie, and and the purpose piece when I when I talk to business leaders about it, they they kind of look at me like, uh, and I say, you know, it takes imagination, and uh, and. This is a real motivator and inspirer, but it takes some imagination. It takes an involvement of your whole organization to get involved uh, with with defining that and making it right. real and not just a bumper sticker. No, absolutely. Think about Zappos. I mean, like, how how do you? I mean, I'm curious if you know what their you know transformative purpose is. But they they make shoes. You know what I mean? Or they sell shoes. So. What could be massively transformative about that in terms well, they, of they, they give they give a lot of shoes away to people around the world that don't have shoes. They give ah. a, a, they give a key portion of their of their profits. I think that they say that for every two or two or three pairs of shoes that are purchased, I haven't looked at this in a while. That they give away a pair of shoes and they send them to places like uh, 
like the Sudan or Eritrea or or uh, Zimbabwe right. or someplace, and and through the nonprofits they give these shoes away, and and that's really inspiring uh, to young idealistic to idealistic idealistic young people and to idealistic old people like me. No, I totally agree. That's really cool, and that, I didn't know that, but it makes sense. You know, I'd I'd want to be part of an organization that is, you know, basically upgrading the the hygiene and the the mobility of the planet than just selling shoes. You know, it's like Google. You know, it's very, very, you know, motivating to organize the world information into a digital format that's easily searchable than it is to just go work for a firm that sells advertising. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And and they do and they do enough stuff. I mean, they they are still a business, and they've got to take care of their their share their shareholders and their primary and secondary stakeholders. But they're right. also doing stuff which does, which is clearly. Uh, the, the profitability of it is questionable, like digitizing the world's information and and right. uh, and other things that they do, which is just really neat and uh, and is bold. Right. Yeah, no doubt, and that's probably another defining factor right there of, is boldness, right, of these organizations. Well, you know what? We could go on and on and on, and it'd be really fun to do that. But I know you got things to do, and, and as do I. But um, really, really appreciate. You know, you're you're coming on today, Bob, and, and I hope we get to do this in the future. And of course, I stand by to support you any way I can. And I look forward to seeing you when we talk to the Naval Academy alumni group. I think in April. But uh, before we go, is there any uh, anything you'd like to share in terms of how people can stay connected with you? I mean, I know you got a personal blog. Um, you probably should write a book soon. You know what I mean? I'd love to chat with you about that. But how, how do people stay connected or if someone wants to follow up with you, is, is that something you'd be open to? Sure. Uh, the, the easiest thing, that I, my blog is called Bob's Corner, What's Bob Been Thinking About? And it's and it's kind of all over the map. My next my next post, which I'll probably post this this weekend, will be my review of, uh, of Lone Survivor. Have you seen it yet? I saw it a, a few weeks ago up in L.A., Man, okay. I, I I just saw it a couple. I just saw it last weekend, and so I'm gonna write, I've written a review of it, and uh, I, I give the movie a B plus. Yeah. And and I say here here are the things that I really liked about it, and here are the things that I didn't like about it, and right. uh, and so I, so I kind of put that down, but uh, they can contact contact me, and uh, and I can put them on distro. So anytime I put a blog, or they can subscribe to it, so that they get sent. And it said Bob's Corner one word dot wordpress dot com and uh, or they can they can email me at uh, and uh, and if I get a whole lot of them I may not be able to respond to all of them but but uh, (laughs) s c h o u l t z at san diego dot edu and uh, and for the work I do I'm at uh, at fifth fifth factor leadership one word uh, dot com. And you have an email form there that that they uh, if they forget all that they can they can go through your website. Uh, I I believe so. I'm not, I'm not really good at all of this marketing myself stuff. I didn't learn how to market myself in the Navy. I'm still figuring it all out. I do right. have a website though. Is that that's a start, uh, Mark? Yeah, that's, that's a great start. <laughs> <laughs> a great start. Well, anything I can do to help you out, Bob? You know, I'm, I'm stand by to support you, and I, again, I really appreciate everything you're doing. And I will uh, we'll probably see you soon. Look forward to it, and uh, good luck. I think you, I've, uh, I haven't read your whole book, but I've read big pieces of it, and I really like it. And I'm recommending it to a lot of people. My copy Excellent. I've loaned to a loaned to a young man who's going through buds now, but I'm going to go buy him his own copy so I can get mine back. <laughs> you, you 
swing by HQ and I'll I'll give you another one, but I, I'm down to my last two copies myself. We ordered a thousand. No, I want they... I want I want to I want to support you. I want to I want to go ahead and uh, and buy a copy from the store for real. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, Bob. Well, good luck, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Okay, Mark. I enjoyed it. Take care. All right. Yep. Here, right. Mark Devine signing out for Unbeatable Mind, and thanks everyone for listening. Um, that was fantastic. I'm really excited about that call. So uh, stay in touch and stay focused and train hard. Be safe and have fun. Ooh, yeah. Out here. Well, there you have it. I told you that would be a great conversation with Captain Bob Schultz. So thank you very much, Bob. Look forward to uh, doing that again sometime. All right. Coach Devine out. Train hard. Stay safe. Have fun. Hoo-yah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back. The pride of the fleets. The bright swinging frog